song, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, is appropriate for the season today, is it not? This morning, if you'd turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 6, we're going to examine verses 1 through 6 as a portion of our lesson. Our turning over there, I want to tell you about a couple of students I had that I'll never ever forget. It's when I was teaching building back in Alabama, a self-defense martial arts karate class, and oftentimes I would have students from the community who would come and their parents would want them to get exercise. Uh, in Will and Amanda's case, they were homeschooled and their folks wanted them to have some physical activity. But for the six years or so I taught that class, Will and Amanda were there every single time. They were the, I guess you might say, the heartbeat of the class. They were the pillars because they were so dependable and so dedicated. But the thing I remember the most about this brother and sister is that over the course of those six years, we went to a number of tournaments. I'd take my students and they'd compete and try to win trophies and medals and so forth and so on. And Will and Amanda, as far as I can remember, either won every single one of the competitions they entered or were disqualified. Every single one. Which is really strange because it's really difficult to win, get first place. Oftentimes how they do it is you're ranked by your, your age, you're ranked by your gender, and also by your skill level. So pretty much you're fighting against people who, of course it's sports competition fighting, but you're fighting against people who are your own age, your own skill level. They've been studying approximately the same length of time and your gender. So boys fight boys, girls fight girls. And so in this, it's, there's, there can be sometimes 30 competitors in your group. And so to get first place is very, very impressive. But to get disqualified is almost unheard of. I mean, they never disqualify people. But my two students either won first place or got disqualified every single time. Because they had one quality that none of their competitors had. They had an extremely intense passion for it. Now, this is how it would look. They would step into the ring, and they were good at martial arts, but I wouldn't say they were necessarily the best. They weren't the most graceful. They weren't necessarily the fastest. They weren't necessarily the most powerful. But when they stood in the ring, this is the face they gave their opponent. And they had their hands up ready to go. And as soon as the referee would start the match, he'd say, ready, fight. And they'd go, Rah! and they'd run at the other person. With that look. And oftentimes, the other person would back out of the ring. Now, the fights they won, it's because the referees kind of liked that. You know, they thought, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. The times they were disqualified is the referees thought that was a little much and would give them a warning. But it didn't matter. If they gave them a warning, they were going to get disqualified because these two kids couldn't do it any other way. When they did it, they were all in. I mean, there was no dialing it down. They had one gear, and that was all go, no quit, Everything you got, 
with all your heart. And they illustrated what I think is such a powerful thing. I've told you before that I think the most powerful, the most likely to cause a person to succeed in any endeavor in life of all human attributes is discipline. But the second is very, just barely behind it. The second is passion. And if you have the two together, which these two kids did, discipline and passion, it is a distinct recipe for power and for victory or for disqualification. And when we look in Scripture and even when we look in our lives, I think most Christians desire real depth in their faith and in their lives. We want to engage in real relationships with God, in real relationships with each other, with real relationships with the lost in order to introduce them to that which has transformed our lives and our future that has become our hope. And when we read about the early church, there can be no doubt. You read words of passion in almost every page. As you read through the book of Acts, don't you see it? Passion lifted off the page. As you read how they went and the church was growing everywhere and people were speaking the word of God and about this transformation because of the risen Lord. And it says that everywhere the church went, the church grew. It was like a, a plague on the Roman Empire. That the contagious nature of the church spread everywhere it went. And you know, that's not surprising because passion is contagious. It is. When people see real passion, I mean, it draws, it, whether for good or for evil, whether positive or negative, that's why we have the mob mentality that happens on the negative side of passion. You know, you get some protesters or you get a group of people who are passionate about some cause and their passion comes out and others are drawn to that cause and then suddenly terrible things can happen. But we see in the New Testament that indeed when it comes to the right and the good, it's true as well. They had great faith and that passion was contagious. It reached people. You see, we have to ask ourselves, do we still have that passion? Do we still have that intensity? And is it because of our passion for Christ that we're making a difference in our world, in our community? Well, I think there are several ways that real passion for a believer who has embraced it who lives out that kind of intensity in their faith, I think there are several ways that it comes out. The first is, is passionate about our service. We ask the question, who we are, but the better question would be, whose we are. The Bible describes being a Christian in so many ways. We've been subjected to new birth. 
That means that we were dead in our sins, and now we've been made alive in Christ Jesus. That's something to be passionate about, wouldn't you say? The Bible said that before we came to Christ Jesus, we were doomed and hopeless, and I lived our lives in futility. But now the Bible says that we, that we, even though we die, we will yet live that we look forward to eternity of peace, joy, happiness. Is that something to be passionate about? So you see, God's people, if we really are passionate about our Lord and what He's done and understand whose we are, and because of that who we are, it will manifest itself in a passion to serve Him. To do his will. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, remember Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Listen to the passion that comes forth in that. He's, he's excited. He's motivated. He's intense. Because of the one that he serves. And in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 6, Paul says over there, as he asks the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? And he has to ask that because obviously there were some in the church in Rome who had, they had stretched grace to a point to say, well, we've been given so much grace because we're such sinners. Therefore, more sin equals more grace. It doesn't make a lot of sense unless you filter it through a people who were just intellectually trying to work through it and really kind of wanted to do their own thing. And therefore they're justifying. Paul, he's writing to them and saying, where's your passion? Your passion is to be able to do what you want to do. That's not the passion of a born again person. It's not a passion of the absolutely committed he says, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death and having been buried with him through baptism into life, we live in his name. We have new birth. And then he says, verse 5, for if we've been unified together in the likeness of his death, certainly shall we be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. You hear the passion in his voice? I'm a changed man. Therefore, I'm going to serve the one who changed me. And then I love Paul's words. You talk about being a passionate, changed person. In Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12, Paul will, after he's done his introduction to the book, right before he goes into that powerful, powerful section where he talks about to live is Christ and to die is gain, he's, he knows that they have heard he's in prison, that this letter's being written from his cell in Rome. And he says in verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now here's a guy who's sitting in a prison cell and who'll never get out. He's not going to, you know, get a, a pardon on his sentence and have a few more years to go do... No, no, no. This is his last stop. 
He will go from his imprisonment to the headsman under the order of Nero, the emperor. So he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me, including the cell, have actually happened for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it's been, it's been known to the palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And then he talks about their frustration. You see, in the first century, they had frustrations. We have frustrations. You ever get frustrated at brethren? I don't mean necessarily here in our congregation, but in the brotherhood. You ever get frustrated at society? You ever get frustrated at politicians? You ever get frustrated? I mean, we do. So after he says it's turned out for all the rest, he said, oh yeah, some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ out of love, the latter out of selfish ambition, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But what then? Only that in every way Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice and will rejoice. He takes every negative thing in his life. He takes the fact that there are false teachers. I mean, that's, that's a bad thing. He takes the fact that some even want to hurt him, that are glad he's in prison, and they would like to pile on the misery. He takes the fact that he's in prison, probably never getting out. And he says, it's all all right. Why? Because he says, Christ is preached. And Paul had such a passion for that. He had such an intensity that he says, I, I, I won't even let all this stuff. And I'm not going to let the little things get me down. And to Paul, little things were false teachers, people hating him and standing in a prison cell. Because he was intense. He was passionate in his service to the one who had changed him. We also will be people passionate for God's people. You see, the Bible tells us so many times that to have the right kind of passion that will draw others to our Lord we also have to have the right kind of passion towards one another. Remember, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples. Why? For the love you have for one another. And 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For he, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who loves not knows not God. For God is love. And this is His commandment to the church. And it is an essential part of a powerful passion that He has instilled and, and He has instructed in the lives of His people. I think God's people should be so passionate about each other that we really believe the biblical metaphors that we use in our verbiage all the time. Hello, brother. Hello, sister. You know, it's funny. We always use brother and sister. We never use father and mother or son and daughter. But there wouldn't be anything wrong with that, would there? I don't mean father like some religions would call a, a clergyman a father. I don't mean it that way. But Jesus said... If you leave father and mother and brother and sister and son and daughter, you will have father and mother 
and brother and sister, manyfold in the kingdom of God. Do we really think, we use that terminology all the time, brother, sister, but do we really think about it being family? You know, someone who's way older than me, I wouldn't be offended if they called me son. Don, you're welcome to do that if you want. <laughs> Had to get a little bit of it. But you know, it, we don't do that, but maybe it would help us to register the passion, the love we're supposed to have for the family. We're a family of God. Now be careful with it. Don't go up to any of our sweet ladies and call her your great-great-grandmother in the faith, okay? <laughs> be careful with it. But, but it, it, wouldn't it be something if we really lived out that passion for one another, a passion for family. And, and we all understand that. Because we're passionate about our families, aren't we? We're passionate. And then finally, we should be a people who are passionate for the mission. See, the New Testament church, they were passionate to fulfill their destiny, to go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. And I know we talk about evangelism a lot, and in this congregation, we probably emphasize it even more than others, because this is a very evangelistic congregation. And we talk about bring, teach, and keep, but the whole concept of bring, teach, and keep is that everyone can be passionate about evangelism, regardless of what your skills are. Regardless of what your giftedness is. Not everyone's gifted to be a Bible teacher to the unbeliever. But everyone is gifted in some way that can allow them to be intensely passionate about the lost. I read a fellow named Mark Middleberg who gave this example of how every one of us can have a different personality, have different giftedness from the Lord and still be powerful in our evangelistic spirit. He says Peter's approach was confrontational. He was direct. He was bold. He was to the point. Some of you are that way. Maybe you need to even tone it down a little bit. But there is a place for that. He says Paul's had an intellectual approach. He could be confrontational, but he was a well-educated man who could reason from the Scriptures and explain and prove that Jesus was the Christ. He says the blind man had a testimonial approach. The man in John 9 didn't know a great deal of theology, but he could say, well, one thing I know, I was blind and I'm not anymore. I can see. And for some, that's what you can be passionate about. I was in my sins. I was hopeless. I was an alcoholic. I had a broken marriage. I couldn't hold a job, whatever it was. But now, that's not me. See, he was passionate. The Samaritan woman, she had an invitational approach. Leaving her water jug at the well, the woman in John 4 went into her village and invited her friends to come and hear the man. I remember where my dad was preaching in California. They had a 
I think it was on Tuesday nights, a program where they had a meal and they would invite folks and they'd have a Bible study, very basic Bible study. They had one lady in that congregation who she would do her grocery shopping at Walmart before that meal every single Tuesday afternoon. Just, and she would stand in the busiest line at Walmart just so she could invite people, strike up conversations and invite people. And do you know over a dozen people were baptized because she chose when she grocery shopped? And she said, oh, my church, we're having a little meal, a little Bible study tonight. It's in just like an hour and a half. It's a free meal. Would you like to come? And over the years, a dozen people or more. Because she was passionate in her invitational approach. She didn't teach one of them. Not one of them. But they'll be in heaven with you because she chose to shop at Walmart on Tuesday afternoon. And stand in the busiest line. Then there was Matthew's interpersonal approach. In Luke 5.29, Matthew put on a, a big banquet for his tax collector friends. You remember that? In an effort to expose them to Jesus. So he relied on the relationships he built with these men. Some of you do that. You've had Lenore and I over for dinner, and then you'll have your brother who's not a member of the church at the same time. Or maybe you have Chuck. Boy, that's a good one to have over. He, he, just make sure you make enough food. But have Chuck over and have your friends over. You see, that was an interpersonal approach, and you can be passionate about it. Dorcas had a service approach. In Acts 9, we meet the woman who witnessed by serving others in Jesus' name, making clothes for the needy and helping the poor. You see, what we see in all these people is they had different personalities, they had different gifts, but each one were passionate about serving the Lord and reaching the lost. You can read Paul's passion. You can just feel it. As you read Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5, I tell you the truth, I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continuous grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, pertain to the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, the giving of the law, of whom are the fathers and of whom, according to the flesh, Christ has come. Do you hear his passion? He says, I'd give my own soul for that. The question we have to ask is how passionate are we in our faith? Are we passionate in our service because of all that he saved us from? And all that he's blessed us with. Are we passionate for each other? Because it's the only way we'll ever reach the world. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And are we passionate for lost people? You see, passion requires real conversion and real commitment. You know, in olden times when the ships were 
moving on. I was wrapping up to this powerful conclusion, and look what happens. Okay, let's all just put that out of our mind. Stop! Put that out of our mind. Get back to the conclusion. So in olden times, when, of course, the great man of wars were, were all over the seas, and Portugal, and Spain, and Britain, and, and France were all big naval powers, every ship would always have up the mast on a, on a rope, they'd have their colors. You know, the colors of their nation. But oftentimes, the reason it was on a rope is so that if pirates came, they could pull down. Or if, it, if they were surrounded by an enemy armada, they could pull down, you know, and hopefully no one would know whose they are. Christians, we don't have any rope. Christians nail our colors to the mast. Because to Christians, the passion is so intense. We are so committed that we don't care who knows whose we are. And we're going to represent him with great zeal, great commitment, great passion. How passionate are you in your faith? You know, we're winding up to a new year. And one of the traditions in our culture is to make commitments, resolutions, we call them. I actually think it's a pretty good tradition because, you know, whether you do it January 1st or August 15th, whatever it is, making changes that are needed is always good. If today you need to make a change... If your faith has been somewhat cold and dull and it needs to be invigorated, it needs to be reignited in passion, don't delay. Come right now as we stand and as we sing.